Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. You're very welcome to the program and one gets the sense that the seasons are beginning to change. It certainly had a bit of a nip in the air this morning. Winter's approaching, but keep the heat off. It's Friday, 16th of September. On the Michael Reed Show this morning, a major protest is planned for this lunchtime as pressure mounts on the Minister for Health to make his intentions known around the future of the emergency department at Navan Hospital. The health system is facing a perfect storm as shortcomings are highlighted by the Irish Medical Council. The government has been called on to take immediate action to protect the most vulnerable in society. Ireland's National Association of Charities says it's important to focus on supports and services being offered to various organisations. And retailers warn the cost of living crisis is not the right time for further excise increases. We're here with you till 10 o'clock. If you want to call us, you can text or WhatsApp us on 086 1800 658. Now, as you probably heard in the news this morning, a baby remains in a critical condition in a Dublin hospital this morning following an incident in County Louth. Here to tell us more about this is Mark O'Driscoll from the LMFM newsroom. Mark, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Now, we know information is pretty scant on the ground since this particular story broke late yesterday. What can you tell us about the Garda investigation that's currently underway? Yes, good morning, Alan. Well, news of this tragic incident reaching us yesterday in the LMFM newsroom just after five o'clock. Although the incident itself took place in County Louth earlier in the week, Gerdy confirming yesterday evening that an investigation is indeed underway after this newborn baby has been left fighting for their life in hospital. The infant, we understand to be a nine-week-old girl, suffered serious injuries at an undisclosed location in the county and was admitted to hospital on Tuesday. Now, are we any closer to understanding the nature of the injuries that this child suffered? 
No, well, Gardaí stressing at the moment, Alan, that the investigation is really in the early stages. One line of inquiry, however, that is being explored is that the child's injuries were not inflicted accidentally. Now, it's the Gardaí in Drogheda who are leading this investigation. But as I said, they are stressing that they're investigating all of the circumstances surrounding the incident. And I believe a case conference has been held in relation to the matter at Drogheda Garda Station. But as of right now, no arrests have been made. One would presume out of that conference we would probably get more information and details. But right now, is there anything more that you can tell us apart from what has been reported in the past uh, 24 hours or thereabouts? Well, just to say that Gardaí are currently trying to piece together the exact series of events that led to this tragic incident. And also, Alan, that the Child and Family Agency, TUSLA, has been notified of the matter. But as you said there in your introduction, the infant this morning being treated at Temple Street Children's Hospital in Dublin, where her condition has been described as critical. Mark, thank you so much for that. That's Mark O'Driscoll from the LMFM newsroom with the latest update on that truly appalling story. Now, as you're probably aware, a major protest will get underway in Kells today against HSE plans to close Navan Hospital's emergency department. The Save Navan Hospital campaign will meet at one this afternoon. 20,000 people have protested in Meath in the past 10 months, demanding the protection of Navan Emergency Department. Chairperson of the group, uh, A2 leader, Pather Tobin, joins us this morning uh, to try and give us some clarity in relation to where we are or where the Minister for Health is around this particular Uh, decision. Uh, Deputy, thanks for joining us just on that point. Are we any closer to understanding when the Minister is going to come back with some fresh information around this? There's no white smoke in relation to a decision on this uh, unfortunately uh, as of yet. Um, But I suppose the key issue that that we're trying to communicate to people today is that the A&E is so important to this county. Everybody listening to this show um, and everybody that lives in County Mead will, at some stage in their life, need the A&E in Navan. Some member of your family will need quick access to emergency medicine. And the simple question that's before us today is, will that access be there? Or will people have to travel across counties to wait for hours uh, in other A&Es? So this is quite clearly a life and death issue uh, for us all in County Mead. And I've heard, as chair of the campaign, I've heard countless stories of people who have told me that they would not be alive today if it weren't for the A&E in Navan. And that's people whose you know, injuries or health concerns were so immediate, so sudden, that they wouldn't have made it uh, to Drogheda. And, and that's why we're asking people today, don't stay at home, don't you know, um, stay and work at lunchtime take time to go to Kells, to the primary care centre on the Navan Road at one o'clock. The protest will be about an hour long in total, so we're not going to keep people. We, we hope that it will be done and dusted within the lunch break, but it's so important. And, and, and the other point I'd like to make is people don't know how powerful they are. Sometimes we feel that we have a big administration, we have a government with, with all of the levers, but people power is one of the most important things left in this country. And for the last 10 years, that people power has actually kept Navin A&E open. And actually, if you look at it, the Save Navin Hospital Campaign is the largest and most effective hospital campaign there is in Ireland. And as you said, over the last 10 months, we've gathered 20,000 people on the streets of Mead in two separate marches. Just in the last fortnight, we delivered 15,164 signatures to the minister's office in support of the A&E. It's important now 
at this key moment when the A&E hangs in the balance that we don't give up, that we don't put our heads down, that we make sure we finish the match to the end to make sure we get the results that okay. we want, which is the functioning A&E. Okay, well, well let me ask you this, um, Deputy Knowing as as you do how the apparatus of government and the civil service works, it'll take something extraordinary to keep it open. And I say that in the context of reading between the lines of the communications that are coming from the Department of Health and from the hospital. One gets the sense there's almost a fait accompli. And I know I've said this before, but we have to deal with the reality of the situation. And there's a real prospect that it will close. Well, listen, I have no doubt that the HSC are absolutely determined uh, to close the A&E in Navan, that they've done everything um, that they can to do it, that they've withheld investments for years uh, from Navan in A&E to, to bring us to this point. Uh, listen, we have an, an uphill struggle. But there's one thing that TDs and ministers fear, and that's people power. And that's TDs losing their seat if they're on the wrong side of with, this with, argument, Pather. TDs are, 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 are only in place to serve the people that elect them. And once they forget that key element of a democracy, well, then their time is over. And the danger is here that we have government TDs who are not listening to the people power and the voices of, of the people in County Mead. And, you know, if, if, if they want to see... Well, no, hang on a second. I'm not here as a mouthpiece for the government, but in fairness to those politicians, they have come, in, in my time and on Michael's time on this show, they have come on, they've expressed their view on it, and they've supported the, the people and what is required in order to keep it open. Well, there's two things. There's two things there. First of all, um, there has been a different response from different government TDs. And I don't want to go back into, into all yeah. of it, but one of the major problems is right now there's a contradiction between the Minister for Health uh, Stephen Donnelly and Damien English, uh, the, uh, the junior minister. Stephen Donnelly has created a review which quite clearly, in his terms of reference, and in, in, in the documents that the LMFM have FOI'd, stated that the review is only on the basis of reconfiguration and closure of NAV and A&E. Minister Damien English has stated that the review will take into consideration a feasibility study on the future of a functioning A&E in NAV. Now, both of them are in contradiction with each other, both can't be correct, and one of them is not telling the truth to the people. And all we're saying into the, to, to, as a hospital campaign is, if we're going to make a decision as grave as this, make it on the basis of empirical research, include a feasibility study on a functioning, healthy, uh, safe navinani into the future in the review. And but, when we but should look at Pather, Pather in, in relation to a feasibility study, this should have been carried out a long, long time ago. I mean, we've moved on, the narrative has moved, the, you know, the process of shifting things around has moved. Doing some sort of feasibility study now is surely a waste of time. Well, first of all, the, the needs of the people haven't moved on. And that is the central ingredient to this discussion. There's no point in having a discussion on the health service if it's not reflective on what people need. And, like, Mead has a population of 220,000 people. There will be soon in people to meet. As a woman said to me in, in Avon the other day, she said, if you stand still long enough, someone will build a house on top of you. And we know that the population needs proper health services. And Drogheda, like, the, the people of Loud should be up in arms over this because they're already experiencing 12-hour waiting times uh, in their A&E. Now, last week, there were 95 patients in the Navin A&E. If it closes, the majority of those patients will, according to 23 hospital consultants in Drogheda, will make their way to Drogheda 
to actually increase the length of time that people have to wait to maybe 24 hours, which is what's happening in Tala at the moment. And it's like, it's not that we don't have already a vision of what the future looks like, because it's already happening in Limerick University Hospital. Nina and Ennis are closed, and University Hospital Limerick is a war zone. The question we have today is, do we want the Drada Hospital to become a war zone and for the patients to suffer the ill health that that causes? And, you know, this is a material difference to people. 360 people a year die as a result of waiting times in a mm-hmm. So this is a material threat to the health of the people. And that's why we're urging people, don't stay at home. Don't get angry okay. on Facebook. Don't get on Twitter. Get to Kells for one o'clock today. Join hundreds and maybe thousands of other people there in pushing for a proper health service for County Meath. Okay, well, you cited examples around the country, Ennis, Nina, um, and, you know, when we look at situations... Yeah, well, but when we look at situations like this, and quite rightly so, we tend to look at it in isolation and the impact that it would have on the community, on the region. But sometimes, you know, albeit a bitter pill to to swallow, Pather, we need to change and perhaps having a holistic approach to health and expanding it to help the needs of the many when sometimes the needs of the few might suffer is probably in the best interest of the overall region, is it not? Well, a number of years ago, there was empirical study done to see what would be the best solution for the region. And that study showed that actually the location of a new regional hospital in the Navan area was the best solution for the, the region. Yet, political interference came about at the time in, in, in terms of uh, Dermot O'Hearn, who is Fianna Fáil Minister in County Loud, and he said there's in the red sense to be paid for the new regional hospital. And the plan, which was evidence and scientific uh, based, was scuppered as a result. Now, we hear regularly of ministers saying that we need centres of excellence. And I, I would love centres of excellence, but we don't have it. What we have at the moment is centres of trolleys. And the government is so far removed from the people here because it is extraordinary, the crisis that's happening in the health service. It's beyond precedent. 1.3 million people right now, one in four of your listeners, Alan, are waiting on a hospital waiting list for key health treatment that they need to be healthy. We have record waiting times. I've never seen a summer go by where every single hospital around County Meath has sent out a message on the media saying to patients, don't come near us, we're stuffed, we can't handle it anymore. And that's what's happened right through the summer. And now we're facing down into a winter where we could have another wave of COVID, where flu will be in place, and where we have, no doubt, we'll have hundreds of people on, on, on trolleys. And the key capacity in A&E that is necessary to alleviate that crisis, the HSC decides to close it. They have no idea what's happening in people's lives. They're so far removed from the, 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 the everyday health experience of people. And, okay. and I don't think they take into consideration um, people's excruciating waiting times when they develop their plans. They look at the outcomes in the hospitals after people have waited 24 hours uh, for, for hospital treatment. Okay, well, just can I, can, I, can I just stop you, Pather? And I need to just ask you this. I'm around probably a little bit longer than you, for 30 years, I've been listening to these arguments. For 30 years, I've been listening to the same thing about the healthcare system in this country and how badly broken it is. This is cross-political. Why have we not managed to get what could be described as a fit-for-purpose 
health system in this country. Go to some of the other European countries. Go to Spain, for example, which is considered to be a country that perhaps is not as wealthy as us as a, and as forward-thinking as a, us. But by God, their health system is unbelievable, as, as it is in Italy. What has gone wrong here? Well, I, I think there's a number of things uh, that's gone wrong here. The first thing is uh, that we have seen over the last 30 years the closing down of capacity. So in 2000, there was over 20,000 hospital beds in this state with a population of 3.8 million people. Today, there's a population of 5 million people and there's less than 14,000 beds. So we've been, the governments over the last 20 years have actively been taking capacity out of the health service. The second issue is that the, the HSE is an opaque monstrosity. Nobody can actually see transparently what's going on inside and the, the management of it, it is therefore impossible. So just this year, we have Minister McGrath write a letter to Stephen Donnelly and say, you've overspent €2 billion. Euros. How can you do this? this but that's year? his job. His it, job it is, is to, to, to rein people in who are... I mean, we have I, I, budgets. No, I, I agree. No, don't get me wrong. I, I'm on McGrath's side on this. I, I just think it's absolutely incredible that we have a minister over the HSE who doesn't understand what's happening to the budgets that they're spending in, that they're not getting efficiencies and productivity uh, out of this. And if you were to ask me, you know, we sell ourselves as a country that's an IT hub, uh, uh, and a uh, computer technology hub. And yet when we go into our health service, we have no computer system binding all the information about patients together. So if, if a person goes in, uh, to have a baby, if a mother goes in to have a baby, somebody has to run down a corridor to get a big physical file, and um, they're there for half an hour finding the file. The file is written in, and then the file is, is, is brought back. If that file needs to be transferred to some other hospital, a taxi has to come and pick up that file, or somebody has to physically bring it. Instead of having an IT system where all patients' details are, co- are collated and collected efficiently, taking out all of that extra work. And the third point I would say is, over the last uh, 30 we have been employing managers in the HSE to beat the band. We have layers and layers of management and uh, at, at the cost of uh, staff working at the front line. So in a modern company like HP or, 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 or so, there's three layers typically of okay. management uh, Listen, within, com- uh, within that company. In the HSE, there are literally dozens of layers. Okay. There's managers managing managers at the moment, and that's taking up budgets that should be spent on front line. Yeah. And the last thing I can say in this, I believe that investment in the, in, in the health service should be on the basis of outputs. Hospitals should be uh, in, in, invest, are funded only on the basis of the amount of operations they take, the amount of treatments that they deliver, and the amount of people who go through and get uh, uh, proper treatment. But right now, hospitals are funded irrespective of the amount of operations they deliver, irrespective of the amount of treatments that they, do, that they deliver. A hospital could close, and often do, uh, theatres for two or three months over the winter and they still get funded okay. exactly the same as if the operations were happening. And that's one of the reasons, for example, that scoliosis operations will be cancelled. Okay, we must leave it there. Pather, I'm, I'm, I'm out, I'm out of time on this and, okay. and, and no disrespect to your views, your points that you made there, but it's the sort of thing we will probably hear again, not necessarily from you, but from other politicians in perhaps maybe 30 years' time, unless somebody gets a handle on this. Pather Tabin joining us this morning. Don't forget that protest gets underway at one o'clock this afternoon in Kells in County Meath. Let's take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's get to some of your comments this morning. Lorraine from Navin. This is in relation to the hospital in Navin, the emergency department. Alan, we all want a proper healthcare system. 
but we don't have capacity at Our Lady of Lords Hospital to cater for the extra patients. Also, why shouldn't people in Meath have a hospital in their county that is fit for purpose? It's a lack of investment that's caused this problem. 0861800658 if you want to uh, send in your comments to us this morning. Now, the government's been called on to take immediate action to protect the most vulnerable in society. In its pre-budget submission, Ireland's National Association of Charities, The Wheel, said it's important to focus on supports and services being offered to various organisations. Director of Public Policy with The Wheel, Ivan Cooper, said staff within community and voluntary sectors are seeking better paid jobs elsewhere due to the cost of living crisis. And Ivan Cooper joins us this morning. Ivan, thanks for joining us this morning. Before we get into the meat of this story, can you give us some sort of indication as to how much pressure that charities and organisations that offer supports are under at present? Sure. Thanks very much, Alan. So in Ireland, we have, as you've indicated, a kind of a hybrid system for delivering public services that many people aren't really aware of. So there's actually thousands of voluntary and community organisations and charities nationally involved in delivering essential public services. And, you know, these organisations are providing health care, home care, disability supports, mental health services, uh, you know, supports for people who are experiencing homelessness and, and uh, people with, with um, you know, special needs. So um, the issue is that most of those organisations are funded uh, by the state to do that work, basically delivering essential services. Uh, and the problem now is is that we, we have an issue where these organisations are experiencing an escalating crisis in funding and staffing, fuelled by the inflationary pressures and now the cost of living crisis. So the costs are going up, but the funding levels have remained static in many instances since 2008. Uh, and now uh, there is uh, this challenge in relation to staff, understandably, uh, because of the crisis that they're experiencing in their personal lives in relation to their incomes, uh, seeking better paid work elsewhere. So uh, essentially, we're calling on government in the budget this year to provide sustainable multi-annual funding uh, to ensure that funding levels are adequate for services and that these organisations are able to pay staff uh, the wage that, that they need to be paid in order for them to be able to face the inflationary pressures in their lives. So do you have a percentage figure in terms of what is required from government yeah, to, to yeah, keep people in these in these jobs yeah, without having yeah. them to move out? Yeah. So basically, uh, I, again, the numbers are surprising. They're large. You know, uh, these there's over 600 organizations funded by the HSE uh, and they, they receive it's called Section 39 funding and they receive around a billion euro currently. Yeah. Uh, from the HSE to deliver services. So uh, we have looked back at the insufficiency of funding you know, since the 2008 crisis for many of these organisations. Plus, if you look at the context now, the 6.1% uh, that, that's being offered to the public servants, for instance, that's going to exacerbate the situation even more. So we estimate a 10% uplift is what's required okay. in the budgets for those organisations. So that would be around 100 100 million from the Section 39 HSE funding uh, services alone. And remember, TUSLA are involved here. They expend around 180 million a year, Alan. Uh, and we reckon uh, an 18 million uplift is needed in that budget. And then there's 80 million coming out of uh, the Department of Housing for what are called Section 10. Uh, uh, services for housing and homeless homelessness services. Now, just just to, Ivan, to put this yeah. in context for our yeah. listeners, the Section Thirty Nine organisations, and you can correct me on this, yeah. as I understand it, have not had a pay increase since two thousand and eight. They're represented by SIPTU, as are other community organisations, yeah. and they are seeking some f- form of platform to negotiate a pay increase, which they're not getting. SIPTU are seeking. Um, 
them to be part of the new national pay deal, which isn't happening. And as I understand it, there's already been industrial action in July and further industrial action by some of these organisations is happening in September. Is that a reasonable synopsis of what's going on? That's a reasonable synopsis. The HSE does have a process in train in relation to trying to reinstate the level of funding that applied back in 2008 uh, 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 prior to the crash, but it doesn't apply to all Section 39 organisations and it's a protracted and elongated process and it doesn't include any increase over and above uh, bringing organisations back to the level they were at then. So there's, there's there have been massive changes that have happened since then in the labour market, as everybody knows. Um, so there is a pressing issue. Clearly, voluntary organisations are in, uh, in, in, in a challenging position They've got to work hard to retain and motivate uh, and, and recruit new staff, but they're also never going to threaten to walk away uh, from communities that require services and supports. And sometimes uh, many voluntary organisations feel this kind of goodwill uh, is disrespected uh, because the, the funders kind of sometimes maybe know that voluntary organisation boards and, 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 and managers aren't going to simply uh, you know, threaten to down tools, so to speak. OK, well, the net effect, presumably, of this impasse when it comes to pay will be the trickle-down effect to the individuals who require the services of these organisations will not be getting them. That's exactly How close are we to that tipping point where there will be real hardship? Yeah, well, we feel we're very close to it and we're not crying wolf here. You know, the the issue is that what organisations won't do is uh, threaten to walk away, but what they are finding uh, is that they simply aren't in a position to continue to provide services. So over half of the 2,200 there or thereabouts members of the wheel were surveyed this year, uh, uh, kind of in the first half of this year, and their view was at that point uh, that they were uh, uh, they, they did not have sufficient funds in their budgets to get them to the end of the year. Okay, So that's the kind of level of the crisis that's here. So what will happen is is that services will just be suspended uh, or services will be will be withdrawn or cut because the people simply won't be there to deliver the services. So it's a real genuine crisis now, in the sector. Y- yeah. You do accept that there's a historic aspects to this in terms of the, um, the, the pay deals and the negotiations and lack of representation, sure. but the government are also in a position uh, now during the cost of living crisis that they have to produce so much more for so many more people and perhaps you're a little bit further down the line. Well, that's the that's the fear, Alan. So thanks for naming it. You know, it's it's people who need services who will be left without them. So uh, what will happen is that the the impact will manifest in in an invisible kind of a way in terms of increased suffering, essentially, uh, increased isolation, uh, a lack of, of of support for people, increased mental health problems. Uh, so what we're really doing here is storing up long-run problems for ourselves as a society if we don't uh, uh, put the, the necessary investment in. Now, the numbers, although they sound big, they're actually small. So bear in mind that the HSE's total budget is, a, you know, it's a big, it's 24 billion euro, right there or thereabouts. So we're looking for an extra 100 million for these services in the context of a 24 billion budget. Uh, so it, it's not it's not massive money when understood that way, uh, and it would go an awful long way because it for and remember for many people in particular more vulnerable people, they're reliant on the services provided by these organisations. People who are better off or well off can can afford to to pay perhaps themselves to supplement our services, and this is part of a bigger issue. Mm-hmm. You know, can, can I about public services and how they're funded in Ireland? Uh, can I ask you has the problem been exacerbated by the 
I suppose, the over... Uh, hang from COVID because presumably you came under pressure then yep. as has everybody yep. else. Is that being compounded? Yeah. It has indeed. Um, what we what we found is that there is stored up, pent up demand that's there as an overhang from the, the COVID era. Now the government are to be commended for work that they undertook to support uh, charities and voluntary organisations that were delivering services during that crisis. And it was very much a case that relationships between voluntary organisations and, and agencies like the HSE and TUSLA improved during that period because everybody just, you know, put their differences apart and focused in on supporting people in their communities during the crisis. And it worked very well. We had quick decisions made and there, were, there was no quibbling about the budgets that were needed. So what we really feel is there's a lot of really good learning that could come out of that experience and be applied to a new way of doing things going forward. And we are hopeful. The Department of Health and the HSC are working with the voluntary sector now in a thing called the Health Dialogue Forum. Uh, and we're all sitting around the table to try and work out how we can take the best bits of that experience and apply it in a new okay. framework. And one other point, I yep. just want to, it would be remiss not to mention it. The government put a 50 million euro programme into place to tide over 600 charities through the income crisis that applied during the COVID crisis. And, you know, we, we, we definitely salute the government for for taking the right action then in partnership with the sector. And what we're basically asking now is uh, for a similar kind of an investment to be made on an ongoing basis to put these services on. Okay. Very good. We must leave it there. Director of Public Policy with Wheel Ivan Cooper. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Just before we press on, let's go to some of your comments just in relation to the last item we had. Alan, community groups relying on volunteers who assist full-time workers are under threat. The cost of giving is impacting on community groups due to the cost of living. That's from Anton McCabe in Navin. Just going back to the hospital, Mary says she hates to be a negative Nelly, but she thinks that the people of Navin need to face facts and recognise that it's a done deal with regard to Navan Hospital. The emergency department is closing. The decision has been made and the HSE will not be for turning. It doesn't matter how many marches there are or how many loud people shout. The outcome will still be the same and unfortunately people will just have to accept it. Another one on the hospital. Packy says he greatly admires the Save Navin Hospital group for their determination and their fighting spirit. But he does wonder if they are just swimming against the tide when it comes to the possibility of retaining the emergency uh, department services in Navin. The medical experts seem to be suggesting that it is in the best interest of public safety to move the services elsewhere. It is wise to ignore the recommendation. Is it wise to ignore the recommendations of these particular experts? We'll have more comments for you just uh, before we get to the news at 10. Now, I suppose one of the biggest controversial elements of what the government are proposing around the cost of living crisis, certainly from a business perspective, is the 80 cent increase to the minimum wage, which comes into effect on the 1st of January 2023. We have spoken to businesses throughout the course of the week and the overwhelming majority of them say bad idea from the government. It's going to have no impact whatsoever on workers who are on a minimum wage when you take into consideration what the price differentials are between what they were paying last year and what they're paying now. It'll have zero impact on them. And in fact, we spoke to ISME yesterday and the view there was the trickle-down effect is essentially it will be a tax on the consumer because the employers will have to pick up that cost for themselves and it will be passed on to the consumer. Well, founder and CEO of HR Buddy, Damien McCarthy, is probably more or less of that view as well and he gives us his rationale around it and why it was such a bad idea. He joins us this morning. Uh, Damien, good morning to you. 
Morning, Alice. What's the net effect of this 80 cent to the minimum wage to the uh, to the businesses? How will they uh, absorb it or what will it mean for them? Well, we're, we're talking about a 7.6% uh, increase um, on the minimum wage, Alan. Um, at a time, uh, I suppose, when, you know, it just isn't there inside in small and medium-sized businesses. And, you know, the, the largest employer in this country is the SME business owner. They're employing 1.7 million people of the 2.5 million people that are at work uh, in this country. And if you look at what the governor of the central bank um, wrote in his uh, pre-budget tax letter uh, just last week or in the last week or so, he suggested that any supports uh, should be temporary and targeted. Okay, um, so I would argue similar to the kind of situation or the, the kind of crisis that we were in in COVID and the kind of COVID supports that were temporary and targeted worked during COVID. There's no doubt about that. I would congratulate the government. And look at, look at all businesses. All businesses, Damien, will agree with that. But we're not talking yeah. about business here. We're talking about individuals who are on a minimum wage, who are finding it very difficult, just as businesses are, to survive. And we need to be cognizant of that and do something for them. Absolutely, and I, I, would, I would do nothing only agree with that, but the 80 cent uh, pay rise in the minimum wage isn't really going to help those individuals too much. Now, we do have a general issue in this country with regards to the rates that we are at uh, with regards to minimum and living wage, and that is most definitely something that needs to be addressed. But it is not the solution in the cost of living crisis to uh, put that burden over onto their employers, because all that is going to happen is that uh, their employers, a lot of those employers can't take that burden, and it may in fact end up in business closures and those individuals losing their jobs. So this isn't the right strategy. What is needed is supports to both the businesses, to both the employers and the employees. Uh, Asking for uh, a 7.6% pay rise may ease some of the burden for those individuals who need that burden eased, but putting the burden onto their employer is counterproductive. Yeah, but it's also counterproductive. It's it's counterproductive as well, Damien, not to give those on the lowest income an increase because it's it's another hurdle for them and for you to try and get staff. The lower you're paying, the less likelihood of you you have of getting staff in the door. Well, yes, that is true. But um, it, in normal circumstances, Alan, that is one hundred percent correct. We're not in a normal environment at the moment. We're in a huge crisis. There is small businesses getting energy bills. Of you know uh, uh, a shop in Roscommon uh, in the news there yesterday, twenty one thousand euros. I mean, these are energy bills being uh, paid to energy companies who are uh, increasing profits from small businesses. The, the, you know the yeah, but but we know the uh, government. We know the, the government in this in country, and the small business is receiving no support. Yeah, but they will. So we will know. In, in fairness, we will know what those supports will be in less than two weeks' time when the minister for finance gets to his feet and outlines what will be in the budget. And by all accounts, there will be supports there and the supports will be akin to what they were during COVID. And that's something that was, in the main, welcomed by businesses. Well, I suppose, uh, looking at the, 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 the trips and drops that we're getting, um, the, the suggestions are things like low-interest uh, loans for businesses. And low-interest loans for businesses aren't going to get... Uh, um, businesses out of this situation and that is not going to be enough Um, I think there was a commitment during COVID to protect business and to protect people's jobs 
and I don't think there's the same sentiment okay. uh, this time around and I would be very very worried about it in the next few weeks in an awful lot of businesses um, energy bills and energy uh, uh, direct debits are going to start bouncing. Okay, we've got to leave it there. If that's happening, it, 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 it will mean job losses. So we must get the strategy right, Alan. Okay, founder and CEO of HR Buddy, Damien McCarthy, thanks for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Retailers warn the cost of living crisis is not the right time for further excise increases, widening the gap between the price of duty paid on tobacco versus what's available on the black market is creating unfair competition and financial loss for legitimate retailers. Any additional excise increases on tobacco products in Budget 2023 will drive hard-pressed consumers to the black market as they grapple with a soaring cost of living. That's according to Retailers Against Smuggling who say Ireland remains a key target for crime gangs taking advantage of a rapidly growing illicit tobacco market. Joining us this morning is RAS National Spokesperson Benny Gilson. Benny, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Firstly, can I ask you, what's the margin on a packet of cigarettes for the retailer? Less, less than less than 7%, uh, Alan, at the present time. Okay, would you not be better off, you know, from a corporate and social responsibility aspect to tell your retailers that they have a moral obligation not to sell this product, given the damage that it does to the health of the nation? Well, Alan, we can do the very same thing with alcohol. We can do the yeah, but not every retailer sells alcohol. Most retailers uh, sell cigarettes, and some, in fact, have, have, have yes. walked away from it. Yes, that's correct. I I agree with you, what you're saying. But like every re- every retailer sells tobacco because it's a legitimate core product, and whilst the government continues to extract revenue from it and continue to allow it to be sold. Why shouldn't the retailer continue to sell it? After all, the retailer has a responsibility to himself or herself to look after their business. You know, like our costs are continually uh, going up all the time, the same as everybody else's. So we have to try and carry whatever product it is that uh, is there to generate uh, revenue for ourselves. Like, you know, we have the same problem with uh, liquor, we have the same problem with solid fuel. Like These pr- products are all smuggled in, yet the only one that seems to be hit on a continuous space is the packet of cigarettes. Can, can I ask you, Benny, um, you know, there, there's the view or the perception amongst many people that you're just acting as a Trojan horse for the cigarette industry, that you're fighting their campaign, their war, and not your own personal war. Are you being funded anyway by the, by the tobacco industry? Or are you being advised by the tobacco industry in relation to this? No, no. The tobacco industry can fight their own fight. They're big enough. The companies are big enough, uh, Alan, to fight their own corner. You know, the very same as any other industry is big enough to fight their own corner. We we have to look after our members, our retailers. You know, we need to fight our own corner. Our expenses are going through the roof, the very same as everybody else's. And as we have said, like when uh, people's bills are going up and going up and going up and cigarettes are coming in at the level they're coming into the country. Okay, well, 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 Benny, nobody disagrees with what you're, what you're saying, that every business has to make a profit, every business has to, has to survive. But, you know, when you look at cigarettes, one of the biggest driving factors that are turning people away from smoking is the cost. 
packet of cigarettes now, as I understand it, is somewhere in the region of 15 euro. Now, yeah, I, I, I take your example of going to the black market, but that price, that pinch point is forcing people away. That is a good thing from a health perspective and from the perspective of the health system in this country because the amount of money we spend dealing and paying for patients who smoked all their lives and have to go later in life to get intervention medically is astronomical. So anything that will stop people smoking is a good thing and that includes bumping up excise on cigarettes. But there's little point in bumping up excise on cigarettes, Alan, when we have a growing market of illegal cigarettes coming into the country. Is, is, is what you're saying, we stop selling and we hand it over to the criminals. No, well, in you fairness, know, we the, the authorities, the authorities are doing a damn fine job stopping these smugglers, bringing illegal cigarettes into the country. Now, I accept that there are uh, illegal cigarettes being sold on the street, but we're stopping a lot of it. Very, very, well, if I said to you, Alan, that less, more than 21% of the actual cigarettes sold today are illegal smuggled cigarettes. More than 21%. So is that doing a damn good job? We're not condemning the customers or the guardie for the job they're doing. But what we are saying is that the market is growing, the illegal market is growing on a daily basis. We have seen not only uh, for the last six weeks in our own county, Three major seizures of illegal products. Three major seizures. So do you think that they're coming in for people to feed cattle with? This is a historic problem. It has been here for for decades. It will continue to be here. It'll have to be managed. And I'll go back to the point that I'm saying customs and revenue are doing a good job to try and tackle it. They'll never get it to the point where it'll be zero. It's something that we'll have to live with. Well, why should they not get to zero, Alan? Why shouldn't they? Because get they to don't zero? have the resources, and they always have to be yeah. try to be uh, one you, step ahead of the. They have the to be one on step the ahead that of the smugglers. Argument. That's our argument all along, Alan. Why not employ the resources to deal with the problem? You know, there is little point in a minister, and this is where our our, our bone of contention comes from. Our government, our politicians, do not want to deal with the problem of criminality. They pass the book, no matter when we meet them. No matter if you want to talk to them at any given time, they will not want to deal with that problem. Well, what about dealing with the whole aspect, and you brought it up yourself around alcohol. I mean, take this region, for example, we're a hop, skip and a jump to the border there. And I would wager in the next number of months we'll see statistics coming out where people are going across the border in order to get cheaper alcohol. That's taking away from your profit margins as well and your customers. So that, that's a problem you have to deal with. That's, that's quite correct. It's a, that's a problem that is there. That problem is there for the last 35, 40 years. That's, that's a continuous problem. As that is, is there. the problem with and cigarettes. It is, like we, at present time, are the dearest country within Europe for tobacco products. The dearest country within Europe. And yet we still do nothing about the level of smuggling of cigarettes that is going on. But I hear people screaming at the radio, thank God we are the dearest people in the world, in Europe, when it comes to cigarettes. We were outliers back in the day when we banned smoking. In fact, it was Micheál Martin, when he was Minister for Health, banned smoking from pubs. It started the whole wheel turning in terms of reducing the numbers, and thankfully those numbers are reducing. They're not, however, reducing in third world countries. But we have to do, with all due respect to your members and your profits being squeezed, it's about the well-being and health of our society of people in this country. 
But what you're saying, Alan, is the well-being and health of the people of our country. We're all concerned about the well-being and health of the people of our country. But we have to face a reality. If cigarettes are a legitimate core product, which they are, the very same as a bar of chocolate is a legitimate core product, a bottle of milk is a legitimate core product, that is, these are products that... doesn't kill you, though. On it doesn't kill you, Benny. And whilst they are a legitimate core product, we will continue to sell them. Until such time as the government are prepared to bring in measures to deal with them as a legitimate core product then and not till then will we change. We have had to comply with all of the regulations that they have brought in. We have to keep them behind closed doors. We're not allowed to spray them. We're not allowed to sell them to under 18s. Yet you see it and you hear it on a continuous basis for the last couple of months where uh, teenagers are found to be smoking at the age of 14. They're not getting them in retail outlets. Benny, look, we can go to and fro in this argument. There's arguments to both sides of it. But in reality, you must accept that the difficulty is trying to convince the Minister for Finance not to increase excise on cigarettes is a wasted exercise. It's going to happen. Do you accept sure, that? It has happened for the last 20 years. I know. Well, that's, that's my point. It'll continue to happen. Yes, but you're like, we like the, the bottom line of it is, what has he done? Every year up until two years ago, Alan, every year up to two years ago, the minister would stand up on budget day and he would announce the extra revenue that he was gaining from increasing the price of the packet of cigarettes. To, from, for the last two years, he has not said that simply because of the fact that it is a lost leader for them. They're not gaining extra revenue. They're losing revenue and they're pushing more people into the hands of criminals. Well, hang on a second now. Do? I'll tell you, say, what, what has the minister achieved? But I'll tell you what the minister has achieved by it. He's achieved me giving up cigarettes some time ago because of the price point of a packet of cigarettes and because of the fact that you couldn't buy a pack of 10 cigarettes anymore. Anyone in their right mind who'd go and spend that sort of money, and I accept that they would go to the black market, but the majority of law-abiding citizens will not go to the black market, but they will be encouraged to give up cigarettes by virtue of the cost of a pack. But yet, yet, but yet Alan, as I have said from the outset, more than 21% of the population today are buying illegal cigarettes. You know, I, I don't want people buying cigarettes. I'm not trying to encourage people to buy cigarettes. But you're selling I, them. But, but so, also, so also is every, uh, every other retailer. As I have said from the outset, they are a core legitimate product for us to sell. Okay, uh, Betty, Betty Gilson, we've got to leave it there. Joining us this morning, he is the RAS National Spokesperson. Let's take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. It just doesn't seem to be going away, certainly for many of our listeners, and that is the cost of living crisis, and such as the fear around the current energy crisis and the rise in the cost of living that allowed the pensioner removed all her light bulbs for fear she wouldn't be able to afford her electricity bill. Joining us on the phone this morning to tell us more about this is Sonia Van Calcaren, founder manager of Save Our Homeless in Dundalk. Uh, Sonia, thanks for taking our call this morning. Presumably this is just one of a number of similar stories that you have come across recently. Because it's, um, it has taken a new president, um, the elderly, the way they are suffering at the minute. Um, since we exposed that lady last week, I won't say exposed, since we helped her last week, so many more elderly have gotten in touch with us, um, which is a good thing um, in one way, but um, it needs to be addressed and it's difficult for the elder community because that sense of fear is amplified amongst them more than it is perhaps between yourself and myself or our age group. Um, 
the elderly, they are living in fear. They're afraid to light fires. They're afraid to switch their lights on. Everything is affecting them. Um, someone needs to clarify that they're not going to be switched off. They need help. Um, it's not fair. Like that, that lady that we had last week, she was sitting in darkness, afraid to switch a light on. And the few bob that she had left, rather than buy food, she was keeping that in case she needed for electricity or gas. But I presume, or maybe people aren't aware of the fact that it would seem incredible that an electricity provider would cut anybody off in the winter, particularly at this time when we're going, and elderly, when we're going through this very difficult economic crisis, which will just accelerate down through the next few months. Why isn't that message getting through, particularly to the elderly community? This lady in particular that we're speaking, the only company that she had for a couple of days was the television. So she's listening to reports that are coming on the news and nobody is actually addressing the fact that they're not going to be switched off, that there is help. And I know it's it, they're saying that the electricity is going to be raised by another 50%. Mm. That's, that's astronomical. No one can sustain that kind of payments each week. They're on, they're on the, their elderly pension. So you're either going to feed yourself or you're going to sit in darkness. Well, let me ask you that. Are, are you coming across cases where pensioners particularly are, are not feeding themselves or not adequately nourishing themselves for fear that they won't be able to pay for whether it be rent, light, heat or whatever? Yes, we are. We work closely with alone. Um, they're a great group of people um, and they've contacted us to help people that are in the same situation. Um and since that release last week for that lady, we've had elderly men walk through the door. And the smile on the face when you actually can say, yeah, we can help you, no problem. Uh, we have coal, we have food, and yes, no problem, we can help you. But you can actually feel the emotion when you say, yes, we can help you. You can read it in their eyes. Do you understand? I, I do, but what I am concerned about is the sheer weight of numbers that you are going to experience over the next couple of months looking for help and there will probably come a point where you won't be able to help everybody that comes knocking on your door. Is that a realistic proposition for you? It is now at the moment. Um, I'm fearful for the winter. Um, last year it, it was uh, we did 720 food hampers Christmas week alone and that's without elderly being involved, that's without homeless or anything and this year with the price of everything rising, it's just imploded on us. There's days that we can't keep up with it. Now, I have to say that the community spirit in Dundalk is absolutely amazing. And the people in Dundalk have helped us so much. But there will come a time where the people who are helping you perhaps will have to go to you for help themselves. Yeah, food poverty now is becoming a reality because people, we have people that are working, working families, they're wondering how they're going to cope. So our, do- our food donations are going to go down because they're going to provide for their own families. So it is a crisis and it's going to get worse before the hard winter hits. We spoke a little bit about the elderly there and you outlined that particular case of that individual who took the light bulbs out. What about younger people, particularly children? Are you finding that there are cases of children who may be not getting enough food in order to sustain them throughout a day? We've been helping families for a number of years now. Um, so they're coming to us. Um, back to school, the fear of Christmas, Santa has to come. It's it's tough out there right now. And going to get tougher, presumably. Oh, it's going to get worse, a lot worse, yeah. yeah. 
Okay, Sonia uh, Valkirkren, thank you for, for joining us. And that makes for a very depressing conversation in terms of what's going to be coming down the track, not just for elderly people, but I think the entire community and particularly younger people. So we just, I suppose, have to wait and see what the situation is going to be around the supports that are going to be put in place by the Minister for Finance um, in the next couple of weeks when he gets to his feet and announces his budgetary measures. Let me just switch, I suppose, our focus to the environment and what we can do as a community in this region to try and make our beaches safer and cleaner for future generations. And I want to go back to a time, I suppose, in 1986, where the first international coastal cleanup got underway. And Sinead McCoy is Coastal Communities Manager with the Environmental Education Unit with Antashka and joins us this morning. Sinead, we'll get to what we're talking about specifically in a moment, and it's going to happen right around the country this particular weekend. But talk to me about the international coastal cleanup and its genesis back in 1986 and what it has achieved since then in terms of the number of volunteers and the amount of waste that they've actually got off the beaches. Yeah, so Clean Coast, um, that's kind of the Irish program within it. Clean Coast are a part of the International Coast of Cleanup Measures. Um, It's, like you said yourself, it was set up in 1986 and over 17 million volunteers worldwide go out in September of every year to do a beach clean. Um, Over 158 million kilograms of trash is removed from the beaches from this cleanup effort. It's fast, it's all around the world, it's like a very, very, like, just incredible community. And I want to talk about the community and how that has translated to the community input in Ireland because it is significant. It's quite a movement. And the number of people and cleanups that are going uh, going to happen around our coast this weekend is substantial, to say the least, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Like, we're kind of in awe of, of the amount of people that want to get engaged and, and supported. Supported. Um, we have we run the Clean Coast program throughout the year, and we have eighteen hundred groups that will adopt a beach and maybe go out once a month or a few times in the year, or even some go out once a week to clean up their local beach. And then when it gets to the end of summer, we team up with the International Coastal Cleanup, the ICC, to host the end of summer event for all these cleanup groups. But this year, it was not just um, people from cleanup groups; loads of just individuals who had heard about it, who've been kind of engaged in the local space registered with us just to get out and do the big beach clean this weekend. And just to let our listeners know, we'll talk about our own region in a moment, but there are 500 locations around the country where people are going to be participating in this clean-up, getting waste off the beaches. But let's talk about our, ourselves here. How many registered clean-ups are happening in this region? So there's, in live itself, 17 um, groups registered to do clean-ups. Now, that's loads of different locations there. We have like Clarehead Beach, and there's actually a few cleanups happening in Clarehead Beach um, over the coming weeks. Um, Giles Key, uh, Brookville and Drogheda, uh, Carlingford, and a few spots in Carlingford have been adopted. Various stops around uh, Dundalk. And then even there is some people in Lyle that have registered and they're going to do a few beaches outside, so they're going to do some beaches around um, the Mead region as well. Um, yeah, so it's kind of all over um, Lyle. There's loads of activity happening now this weekend. Okay, talk to me a little bit about the sort of waste that people are picking up off the beach and what sort of quantities, uh, it, it, particularly in this country, have you seen an increase over the past number of years? 
Yeah, um, we've actually seen an incredible increase in, in our volunteers. Um, so sometimes we do see um, that they're cleaning up less uh, as an in individual. So maybe cleaning up like a full bag as opposed to two or three bags. But overall, we're collecting way more um, rubbish than we've done before. Um, so this there was going to be a we estimated about ten thousand uh, volunteers out this weekend. Um, and each of them will usually take in a bag or two bags of rubbish. Um, so that's an incredible effort um, lifted off the coastline. Um, in Lyles alone, I think there's nearly 500 um, people that's going to be getting out over the next weekend um, to, do, to do their clean-up. So that's going to just, I suppose, it, we'll find out at the end of it uh, how much mm-hmm. was collected. Um, when we, we ask people to send in information on what they collected and uh, where they collected and how much. Um, so we'll be able to kind of calculate next week. Okay. Um, how are we as a nation when it comes to bringing our rubbish and waste from the beach when we visit there? Well, I think this summer we did, uh, We I think we all saw that there was a lot of issues with um, people leaving wasted beach during the summer, summer, summer period, so very, when it was very, very warm. And it was, it was appalling busy. to see some of those pictures, particularly around some of the beaches around Dublin, Dolly Mount, I'm thinking of particularly, and the level of waste that was taken off those beaches every day. It was just utterly appalling. And it was heartbreaking for the communities as well. And we've definitely seen it around Dublin and, and those like really busy beaches. But we, like it's within, within the Clean Coast Network, we've seen it throughout the country. Um, Cork, Mayo, Donegal, like, every country with both ends, it was just massively, massively impacted them. And the communities that were out cleaning these beaches all year round were just really devastated. Um, so it definitely, but the, I suppose the only positive really of it is that there was a public outcry um, and people were like, you know, the coverage was very much very negative to this behaviour. Um, and it did create a lot of awareness. Um, even in some regions, we were able to get more bins placed um, and do some targeted environmental education campaigns to different regions. So it, it definitely did highlight the fact that it, people don't want to tolerate this behaviour. That aside, um, um, Sinead, can I just talk to you a little bit about plastics? Are they still the blight of every beach in this country being washed up? Yeah, they are. They're still, it's still a massive, like single-use plastic is um, a massive issue for us. It, now, what lands on each beach across Ireland varies greatly. Um, you find on the west coast of Ireland there's a lot more fishing litter. Um, and then on this the, the east coast we'd see much more plastic and plastic items coming in on the tide um, but yeah every beach we will always find plastic very before very I, of affairs. before I let you go I presume you would like more volunteers you'd like more areas covered um, and if people want to get involved in this initiative over the weekend I presume it's not too late to do so is it Sinead? Oh no we have a few cleanups happening um, it'd be great if some people could get involved uh, there's a clean-up on Glahari Beach tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Um, there's also a clean-up in Carnford actually happening the following weekend on the 25th um, uh, on at 4 p.m. Um, and all of them actually are up on our website, all the, the, the 17 that I spoke to you about. What's, um, the, what's the website, Sinead? Um, cleancoast.org. So if you go to cleancoast.org, you should find a, a Big Beach Clean page and there's a link there to a map which will lay out all the clean-ups that are happening. Very good. Sinead, we must leave there. Sinead McCoy, who's Coastal Communities Manager, Environmental Education Unit with Antashka, joining us this morning. 
Read the cost of living. Anne says she's sick and tired of hearing politicians telling us we will need to tighten our belts in the coming months. She says she can't tighten her belt anymore. She's already at a point of breaking and is consistently worrying about how she will manage over the winter months. It's hard to swallow when you see public reps on huge salaries telling us how we need to be smarter with our money. Anne says she can account for every single cent she has in her purse and her bank account. She doesn't live a frivolous lifestyle, but yet she still finds herself struggling some weeks. She says she doesn't know how young families are able to manage. Again, this is common in terms of what we're getting from our listeners this morning around the cost of living and the crisis that they are facing and how tight things are from a budgetary perspective week to week and it's going to get like that day to day. I want to bring in Dermot Jewell, Policy and Council Advisor with the Consumers Association of Ireland. Dermot, thanks for joining us this morning and you're a man I've no doubt will be in demand over the coming months but listening to that particular uh, comment from our listener that is common to what you presumably are hearing but what can we do as consumers to try and be a little bit more I suppose frugal when it comes to spending Yeah I, I understand and good morning Alan, thanks for inviting me on um, it's, 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 I understand perfectly and the, 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 the feelings of, of, of people just like that, that listener and I suppose we, we, we have to go back a little bit and just look at advice that we got before and potentially may have, I suppose, I won't say forgotten about, but just put on a back burner and gone, OK, I hadn't really realised I needed to start to do that again. So just to give a small couple, a few of examples, um, we, we all know about the whole idea of, of energy and trying to look around at the, if you go to the, the CRU.ie website, um, it tells you to go to switcher.ie or powertoswitch.ie or bonkers.ie to see what you can do. And believe me, still, despite the crazy situation that's going on, it's worth a look just to see what is the offers out, what are the offers out there for your business, um, both in, in between gas or electricity. And you still can save money because regardless of who you're dealing with, there are still opportunities to, to save a small amount of money. For example, if you go for paperless billing, you will get a 3% discount. Elements like that, 2% addition, so a total of 5% of a discount if you pay by, dis, by direct debit. So small things like that might help. And what's if important you know, as well, Dermot, just to emphasise when it comes to switching provider, it is very easy to do compared to what it was back in the day. It can be done in a heartbeat. It's that quick. You're spot on. And that's the key element to it. Everything is moved forward. It's not painful. It, it, it's, it's your decision. And um, I suppose the best way of putting it, um, there's, there's competition in the market and people are particularly now very glad to see your business coming their way. And it doesn't lock you in forever. Again, you, you get the opportunity to, to move on. Similarly, um, and I suppose something we take very, very much for granted, and I noticed this particularly to the what was the so-called financial crisis, which was nasty. But we all use a telephone all day, every day, um, and in addition to that, we 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 engage with companies to provide us with Wi-Fi, TV coverage, broadband, and everything like that. Have a look. Go to the Comreg website, Comreg.ie, and look up. It's the simplest thing. You just click on Comreg Compare. And that will bring up immediately every single provider of every single service in real time. And you just key in what your current usage is, and it will spit back 
telling you exactly what's the best deal for what you need today. And if you want Derma to get down that road a lot quicker and you've teenage children, ask them about mobile phone providers. They will be able to tell you very quickly who is the cheapest. <laughs> You're entirely right. This is it. They're the experts at the moment, particularly in that in that area. Um, fuel, petrol, and diesel prices are varied around the country. They really are. Take your time. Don't automatically go back to the one you always go to. I, I know people do that out of habit, out of support. But in all honesty, these are different times. Um, you've got to go where the best price is, and there are significant differences where I live. Um, there's a difference in, in, the, in the space of one kilometre. I can save seven cent per litre just be, between one station and the other. So it, it really does help. Um, insurances, I have to come back to this one because we, they're, they're a must-have all of the time, whether it be car, home, travel, health. Never automatically renew. Have a look at around. Take a bit of time and coming back to using the internet. Use it to the best way possible and see who's out there and who's offering what because you will save money. There's no question. You will save money. Um, and I know it takes a bit of time and work, but it's worth it. It's, it's important. And, and here's the thing. That's, that's, that's all about negotiating with the provider. For example, if you decide you want to change your motor insurance or your house insurance or health, you go to a new provider, ask them what they're offering and ask them for their best deal. And when they give you the best deal, say, sorry, not good enough. I can get a better deal elsewhere. And more often than not, they'll come down another small amount. You're entirely right, and this is it. It's it's down to bartering. It's down to negotiation. It's what's the best price you can offer me. And believe me, if you're speaking to somebody on the telephone, they have a list in front of them, and they have got an ability to extend a degree of discount. If, if because let's be honest about it, they're trying to sell business, and they want it, and they need it. So you know, don't think they're in control all of the time and um, you have some degree of control and as I say it's, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world to say no I'll go away and think about it because I believe I can get a better deal elsewhere and that's usually the trigger for some form of a, an extended discussion and it helps to some degree. Let's talk a little bit about electricity providers and you talked about there there's still uh, still deals to be done albeit not at the same level that we could have done them a year ago but looking to the future we're going to find a situation Dermot where individuals will perhaps not be able to pay their bill if they're in that situation what's the best advice for them? The best thing to do and it, it comes with any bill that you find yourself struggling to pay no matter what it is tell the person or tell the business to whom you're dealing with that you have an issue um, and you're, you're flagging it to them that you, 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 you want them to give you an idea of how you can resolve this because some of the, 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 the bills that are coming in, many, many people just simply won't be able to afford them. When it comes to energy, there, is a, there are a lot of considerations around this um, and it, it, we, we've had discussions about this and I think you and I did in, in, on previous occasions, Alan, um, whereby there's this is not a time to be embarrassed about anything. Everybody out there in some shape or form is struggling and you can get a pay-as-you-go meter installed for a period of time and it really helps. It guarantees that you won't be stressing about it. You use a, 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 a method of ensuring that you keep the lights on, you keep the gas on, you keep the cooker going, whatever, um, and it, it, it facilitates and, and the means through which you pay as you go and you also, a small amount of what you're putting in takes down the bill that's there. So it's, it's 
it works for you. Um, and as I say, there's nothing to be bothered or ashamed about or embarrassed by. Um, you'd be amazed at the number of people okay. who have these and want them. We're talking about the big ticket items here, uh, Dermot. Let's talk about day-to-day expenditure and what we can do in order to curtail that or cut it back. Now, already, as that particular caller uh, outlined in her comment, uh, she has tightened her belt as far as it'll go. But for those of us who still can do a little bit more tightening daily, what can we do? Um, I suppose coming back to the basics of food, do acknowledge the fact that we have got actually competitive pricing in the supermarket area. So um, I know it's difficult if you're living on your own, but let's be honest about it. There are there are the big supermarkets we all know about. I could name them all off, but there are the discounters that are there. They sell, they sell quite a significant amount of Irish produce. and The, the, the food is good. And we've, we've never had a complaint of any kind in terms of quality. Neither has the Food Safety Authority. So I, all I can say is have a look around. And most importantly, we carried out a survey, albeit in March of this year, but the reality of the, the, the what was happening was if you look to own brand products, you will save an approximately 40 to, uh, 50 to 50%, I kid you not, um, in buying own brand products. It really works. And I, I, I suppose I might as well flag it here. When you buy an own brand product, it's not that somebody decided I would make something um, off, off the, the bat. These are products that are made by well-established, yep. well-known brands. And, 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 and people don't understand that because they are they not don't. done in, in isolation. They're part of an overall manufacturing process that is undertaken exactly. by the big by the big brands. But one thing, Dermot, um, and I, I, I don't know what your view on this is, when I see people queuing for a coffee, and I don't want to put coffee shops out of business, and the price they pay for it, and if you do a multiple of that over a week, over a month, over a year, it is frightening the amount that is spent on it. It, it absolutely is. Um, and it's, it's, it's all in areas of such as, as, that's a classic example and it's a perfect one because it's quite a significant amount of money. And as you say, some of the prices are quite significant and nobody's trying to put anybody out of business. But I, I honestly believe, I know businesses are struggling, I know it's an issue, but everybody is struggling. And if we don't, if, if business, as much as ourselves, if we don't, search for the best deal, we have a problem. If business don't really, really consider what is the best possible deal they can do and price, um, they potentially are running the risk of losing business because that's exactly, these are the areas where people are going to cut back. They're going to start making sandwiches and food for themselves at home if they have to go into work. Um, they, they will do that and bring them with them. Um, all of the lifestyle style habits in the good times, if you want to call it that, will change. They've, they've happened before, business saw it, and they need to learn. Well, we did. Well, Dermot, we saw it during COVID where nobody could go out to restaurants or bars or whatever, and yeah. people then just adapted. They stayed at home, they entertained at home, and things were an awful lot cheaper. And then some That's people it. said, well, you know, what's wrong with this? We're still managing to socialise, but doing it for a lot cheaper. But again, it goes back to businesses have to survive as well. But look at Dermot, we'll talk again, no doubt, over the coming months. That was Dermot Jewell, Policy and Council Advisor with the Consumers Association of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to Garthi. We're injured in separate assaults in Kerry as emergency personnel representative groups again demand mandatory sentences for those who attack Garthi, paramedics, nurses 
and firefighters in the course of their duties. The Garda Representative Association revealed that there has been a 57% increase in assaults against its members over the past five years, soaring from just 700 in 2016 to 1,096 attacks in 2021. Anecdotal evidence is that Ireland will again witness another increase in assaults against Garda this year, with assaults against officers over recent weeks in Kerry, Cork and Dublin. Joining us this morning is Brendan O'Connor, President of the GRA, the Garda Representative Association. Brendan, thanks for joining us. Perhaps first you could outline the nature of some of those assaults on your members. Um, well, Alan, we have seen, as you reported there, an exponential rise on, on assaults on members in recent years, and they range from the minor push and shove and uh, one of the more disturbing ones has probably been spat at was a very much uh, dynamic during COVID with that team to increase. And then we have up to the very serious incidents like the one that was reported quite recently where a guard was stabbed in the head with a screwdriver and uh, was almost killed only for the intervention of, of, of our Dublin Fire Brigade colleagues. So you really have the spectrum of assaults from the very minor to the life-threatening and life-changing injuries that can be sustained. And they come in a spectrum and myriad of attacks from the use of motor vehicles, the use of weapons, to the just use of body force with kicks and punches. So there's, there's everything in there in the mix. So you and your members are of the view that uh, the perpetrators are the ones who are being protected and those victims are the ones who come out on the wrong side of this. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah we would say that the, that the balance is just the, the, the criminal justice system and the legislation and the sensing that's been used to deal with the, with the phenomenon um, is out of balance. And as you say, there's not enough uh, disincentive there for perpetrators and there's not sufficient punishment, which is not providing adequate protection, which is giving our mem- making our members feel that they don't have the confidence square there to feel that the state is protecting them for putting themselves in harm's way. We put ourselves, we're duty bound to put ourselves between citizens and danger and we understand that and we expect that. But we believe that part of that contract, if you want to call it, between ourselves and the state would be the adequate protection provider for us. And we see in any other, um, we believe in any other walk of life, uh, construction or re- anywhere where you see such an increase in injuries on workers and if now we think that there would be a lot more done and we think that the crisis isn't being addressed in, 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 a, in a joined up way with, with legislation, with procedures, with better training for Gardaí, with better equipment. And we just think that the, the, the figures are alarming and not enough is being done and we think more could be done. What strikes me about these figures, Brendan, and this is not a reflection on you or your members, because God knows I know a lot of guards and I would not do their job for 10 times their salary with what they have to put up with. But what strikes me, and over the past number of years, and particularly during COVID, was we as a nation are heading down the road of a lawless society, given what has been going on in terms of the social behaviour of our citizens. Is that a reflection of what you're seeing? Well, yeah, look, I think it's a very accurate reflection. And, you know, we don't want to use dramatic language like and and suggest a total breakdown. But at the end of the day, the, the, guards, the guards, particularly the uniformed frontline guards are out there doing our duty. That's our function in society, to maintain law and order, to be the symbol and the presence of the state and our collective will as, as, as a nation to, to, to implement laws that are democratically agreed on. If individuals are challenging the indiv- our guards on a daily basis and attacking them and assaulting, yes, it is, it is indicative of, of a change in societal attitudes. And maybe we are, I suppose, um, moving towards a society where there's less respect for law and order and, and less, less respect and less 
I wouldn't say less or, respect. I'd say zero respect. And I and I ask you this question: Does your commissioner agree with the sentiments that you are are uh, vocalising today? Well, I suppose, look, I can't speak for the commissioner, and I can't say exactly what his opinion is. But I would hope that he would share our concerns. Uh, with this phenomenon. And it is an international phenomenon. I mean, we see it across the world. Policing um, is something that has, I don't know, there's a movement or, or a feeling that sometimes in, the police are no longer seen as the good guys by a large portion of society. And people feel that it's, which is entirely right, maybe to, to, to challenge and to question your authority, which is, 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 an, is an acceptable principle. But when you're dealing with someone who's drunk at two o'clock in the morning, you can't have a reasonable conversation. It isn't capable. And a lot of people are turning to using their fists and their legs to, to punch and kick the challenge guards. And we believe that we need to be protected and, and something needs to be done. We're, our members are out there on the front line, at, as I say, in the middle of the night or during the day, and there's not enough being done to protect them by the, the organs of the state. What, what strikes me here, Brandon, as well, and it's a phenomenon that has been creeping in over the past number of years, that the Garda are seen, seen as the bad guys in this because we have social media, we've uh, incidents being videoed and edited to such an extent that uh, you are seen as the bad guys. Is that a problem for you? Absolutely a problem. And, and, and again, it shows the lack of investment and the lack of commitment by our employer and by the state. The very fact that, you know, footage recording incidents is, is, is used across the world, across Every incident you go to, there's CCV fixed on buildings, there's people carrying mobile phones. So standard international practice among any police services that we have our cameras and we record it and we show it an unedited perspective. But of course, the guards, we're 30 years behind most police services in the Western world and even in the developing countries. We don't have the basic equipment like, like um, body cams that are taken for granted in other jurisdictions. Similarly, um, non-lethal weapons like a taser, which is used to protect officers, you know, if you took a place like Scotland, the first place they rolled them out was to police officers who work in isolated rural locations who are more vulnerable to attack. In Ireland, we don't have them. There can be up to three hours away from a guard in rural Ireland who needs needs that sort of assistance. So the system is failing our members and leaving them very exposed and very vulnerable. Okay, Brandon, we must leave it there. Brandon O'Connor is president of the Gunther Representative Association joining us this morning. One piece of information that I just want to bring you, and it's all around profits of the energy companies. Um, And we note that the ESB has announced operating profits of, wait for it, 357 million, not for the year, for the first six months of the year. 357 million for the first six months of the year. That is extraordinary by any statistic. So that'll give you an idea of the sort of profits that are going on there and why so many people are asking for a windfall tax or a cap on energy. But no doubt that will gain and gather momentum over the coming hours and days. We leave it there. Thanks for joining us this week and this morning. We're back again with you Monday, same time. Until then, from me, Alan Cantwell, have a great weekend. Good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 660 Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.